the 18th chapter of the book of John. Pilate said to him, So, you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? from the novel 1984. The central character, Winston Smith, is being tortured, strapped to a machine. How many fingers is the question? Each time, the interrogator shows four fingers. Winston answers four. Each time, pain racks Winston because four is the wrong answer. Patiently, Winston is told, When we tell you five, you must see five. Once again, the question, how many fingers? Five, finally answered Winston. And again, pain floods his body. Why, asked Winston, I gave you the answer you wanted. He is told soberly, you can't just say five. You have to believe it. Good morning again. I'm Carl Schwartz long-time member here, occasional speaker. Today's talk, How Many Fingers, is based or centered on the novel, science fiction novel, 1984, which is written by George Orwell. Orwell was a British writer. He was born in India from the British family, educated at Eton University, He served in the British Civil Service in uh, foreign areas, including Burma, in the 1920s. In 1936, he joined the Republican Army, fighting for the Spanish Republic and the Spanish Civil War. Then, returning to England, and with the advent of World War II, he wrote a number of essays and novels condemning dictatorship, condemning oppression. His best known work was written in 1949. It was set 35 years into the then future, hence the title, 1984. The story is not especially complicated. Winston Smith, the central character in this future society is an employee of the Ministry of Truth, many true. His job is to correct past records where they conflict with the current pronunciations of the leader, Big Brother, the all-powerful, all-pervasive leader of the nation. For instance, when Big Brother's predictions of shoe production differed from the actual recorded production, the old records were called up. And Winston's job was then to correct these records to reflect the accuracy and infallibility of Big Brother. The old records are then destroyed as fake news, for example. And the new corrected records become the records to be so acknowledged by all. 
Now this was done on a continual basis with all such records, predictions, and pronouncements. Unfortunately, Winston continues to remember the pre-change news and information. This makes him a flaw in the pattern of total complacence. He is arrested and tortured to bring him around. Finally, after much torture, being worked with, he does acquiesce, and in the end, he comes to love Big Brother and applaud all the decisions. Now, Orwell uses this story to warn us, to point to the potential of the already at that time practice of efforts of political leaders and groups that twist the facts to lie and distort the truth to achieve and maintain political domination. Especially effective with the use of modern technology and psychology. The novel has stayed on the shelves because people think it is an indictment of the old Soviet Union, which it is. But it is much more than that. 1984 makes a number of prescient predictions of actions and practices which unfortunately have become widespread in the world today, the world we live in, and which look to continue on into the future in many nations, including our own. <laughs> Orwell posits that the purpose or rationale for achieving this dictatorial power is not to use it to free the masses or to achieve universal well-being, but rather power itself, power for the leader and for his cohort. To gain power and to hold power is the end in itself. And we can point to recent examples in today's world, not just Russia or China or North Korea, but places such as Equatorial Guinea, Zimbabwe, or the Maldive Islands, among others. And we see ominous signs right here in the US. The slogans, the banners, the parades, the window dressings are just that, window dressings. It is control and domination that is the focus and purpose of the leader called Big Brother in the novel. Orwell notice, notes that with modern, already in 1949, production methods with the use of automation and time study, the basic civilian necessities of life, cars, fridges, and TVs, today computers, could be manufactured in modern factories in abundance with maybe a one or two day work week. People would have plenty of idle time and be very resistant to control, whether by government or by industry. Of course, workers could be employed full-time, filling balloons on the East Coast, shipping them to the West Coast to be popped there. Needless to say, such a plan would not engender much enthusiasm 
or lead to control. Instead, to use up our modern industrial society's massive production cap productive capacity, industry is geared to massive production of all kinds of military equipment, planes, ships, tanks, in ever-increasing numbers, involving and employing masses of workers and using up tremendous amounts of resources. And as Orwell states, to justify this massive military expenditure, to justify shortchanging civilian needs, such as housing, medical services, education, an evil menace a terrible foe must be seen out there, threatening, building fear, providing justification <coughs> and a psychological rationale for maintaining this ongoing war status. Indeed, the threat of world communism served this purpose well for many years making necessary the ongoing buildup of military equipment, the waging of wars, little and not so little, covert and open around the world, using up productive captivity and making it possible to marshal people in disciplined response to the perceived threat control. And now, as the red menace has receded somewhat, <coughs> a new menace has provincially appeared, a new enemy, perceived Muslim terrorism. This is a new target to focus fear and apprehension, to keep the military complex humming and agencies of control active. In his novel, Orwell even notes this concept of the interchangeability of foes, keeping unbroken the need for programs of control. The governmental organization of Airstrip One, which is Orwell's new name for England, is called INGSOC. Government is administered through four agencies ministries called Mini Peace, which wages war, Mini Plenty, which oversees rationing, Mini Love, the police, and Mini True, the propaganda apparatus where Winston works. The slogans are war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. The only real crime is thought crime which is any disagreement with or deviation from the official pronouncements of Big Brother, whether by overt action or, as noted, even by holding mental reservations. Regardless of how contradictory, false, or absurd the government official pronouncements are. The punishment for thought crime is most severe. It involves mental cleansing and repudiation by the offender, 
This is reinforced by re-education, a nice name for torture, so that people come to see and accept whatever number of fingers the authority says is there. Now the preventative cure for deviation from this established correct thinking is called doublethink. This makes it possible to hold and believe apparently contradictory information. To ensure and reinforce the mental discipline required for doublethink, Winston's employer, the Ministry of Truth, maintains a vast network controlling all sources of information and communication, TV, radio, the press, and in today's world, this would include all facets of computer and internet connections. This network would then is then the only approved source for correct information and sets the standard against which people's responses are measured. Orwell's 1984 world has a two-way TV in every room, ensuring the ability of the Ministry of Love to observe everyone all the time. Mini Love then uses its access to people's every move and word to find and punish non-compliance. Interestingly, last month National Geographic featured an article showing the widespread use of monitoring cameras in London, keeping the London downtown almost totally under continual observation. Privacy, a lost treasure in 1984, is fast approaching that status today. Orwell's worst nightmare coming true. Indeed, today we see the use of Palm Pilots, cameras, and Facebook and other internet programs, which make it possible for detailed monitoring of people. And when people know that this ability of authority to observe their every mood, to be informed of their opinions and speech, and to input selected information to them, it does change and alter their behavior. People do adopt a defensive mood. Now all this facilitates the acceptance of double think, which we see in widespread use in our world today. One example, on climate, people can be aware mentally of the scientific evidence of global warming, the shrinkage of glaciers obviously visible, experience the increase of weather variations, here the sober discussion and analysis of the implications, and yet, at the same time, slavishly mouth anti-warming slogans and support political leaders that do the same. People can hold information that they have accepted in their minds, and yet mouth assertions which are quite to the contrary, which is called, in another word, coined by Orwell, duck speak. And this is another feature of Orwell's world, the reshaping and control of language. Meanings are stripped from such words as freedom, justice, 
and truth. A continual flow of altered and skewed definitions so that truth becomes, loses its own, its meaning. News becomes fake news when it does not serve the purpose of the leader. What indeed is truth in such an environment? So then the ultimate goal is served to maintain control of an ability to motivate people and all society to ensure the power and maintenance of power by Big Brother, the leader. Unfortunately, in today's world, in many nations, big and small, many leaders are working at validating and implementing many of Orwell's predictions, not necessarily successfully. Winston Smith, in the process of his interrogation, interrogation, says he believes that the curbing of Big Brother and his power will come from the proles, the proletarians, the mass of common people. This assertion is dismissed by the interrogator, who says the proles will not rise, will not rally to challenge Big Brother. They are easily distracted by sports, gambling, by sex scandals. And even if someone steps up, they are easily eliminated. Let's consider that. Change of pace. Here's a little true story. When I was about 11, our family got together for Thanksgiving at my uncle and aunt's house. Uncle Eric was a proud, longtime member of the Yorkville, Yorkville Volunteer Fire Department. Just as we were digging into the turkey, the sirens went off, and Uncle Eric rushed up and ran out to the fire station just down the street. Oh dear, oh dear, says my Aunt Frida with great concern. My dad says, hey, don't worry. He'll be okay. After all, he's been a fireman for a long time. It's not that, said my aunt. He's got his new suit on. Across America, in small towns, and some not so small, thousands of men and women serve without pay to protect themselves and their neighbors, their communities, as volunteer firefighters, dispatchers, cleanup workers, chipping in to buy equipment, giving many hours to training, all out of civic responsibility. Here in our Pacific Northwest and around the nation, men and women donate time and effort, coaching, training, refereeing, youth sports of all kinds. People support runs for benefits, including for those benefits for those with special needs. People serve on school boards, donate many hours on parent-teachers groups. People serve as water commissioners on local community councils, often for little or no pay. Yet they oversee expenditure of millions of tax dollars to meet community needs and serve community people. 
We enjoy community orchestras, choirs, community theater groups based on freely given time and talent. Working people organize themselves and stand together in unions to participate in determining the conditions they work under and their share of rewards in every trade and industry, including classroom teachers in every part of America. We stand in line to give blood. We vote, indeed. And we serve as poll workers, as precinct committee officers, doorbellers. We take part in advocacy groups and sign petitions. We go to hearings and demonstrations. We make democracy work. And not least, together with people in every part of our country, we affirm spiritual, ethical, and moral values of human worth and dignity. We here support our Unitarian Universalist affirmations, which we share in some degree with many religious groups around the world, which give us inspiration and strength to meet the challenges poised by Orwell and other writers and speakers. We stand on the side of love. Orwell wrote 1984 to warn us. He noted the existence of evil and hate and mistrust prevalent in the world and the possibility of it extending on into the future. He cast doubt on the ability of the proles, the common people, to meet these challenges and to stand against those that seek power and seek to keep power. But those who foster justice, freedom, truth are also a powerful force, uniting people across our nation and our world as well. We do have the strength to challenge Orwell's pessimistic predictions. We do affirm the dignity and worth of people, seek justice, equity, and compassion, and a free expression of truth. We together with people from around our country and from around the world do commit ourselves to act for and achieve these ideals. Orwell's future is not our future. So be it. <laughs>